Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else close the wall up with our English dead. Good morning again, ladies and gentlemen, hopefully boys and girls. This is the Personal Wealth Coach. This is Jake McClure, and on the line with me I have... Jeff McClure. Together, we are bald, and we also make up the co-hosts of the Personal Wealth Coach. Uh, we had a whole series of good questions last hour. Um, stuff about uh, withholding on on Social Security. Wait a minute. Is that supposed to be a good question? I, we're in a weird business that that's a good question. It's, I think it's a good question. It, it opens the curtains a little bit and lets us look behind them to see that the government rarely knows what it's doing, even when it says it does. Um, but we have another question. Did you see that? It's uh, called K Recovery. A lot of yeah. our, it's from John. Thank you, John. A lot of articles say that uh, only the wealthy are benefiting from the stock market rise. Seems that most companies offer 401ks for their employees. Don't all participants share in, the, in this record market? Am I wrong? Well, we had an article that we were going to talk about. Um, about, yeah, here we go. U.S. household net worth hits record in the third quarter. Household net worth grew by a hundred, grew to one hundred twenty-three point five two trillion. That's with a T, not a B or an M, according to the Fed's Flow of Funds report. As growth in household debt rose, pretty small amount to five by five point six percent. So, what were the you going to say? John's assumption is good, but if you take the number of people in the United States who are covered by a 401k or the number of people who are participating in the stock market, it's a little less than half that thoroughly participate in the stock market. And that side of the economy, if you're participating in the stock market, that means you have enough extra money you can afford to participate in the stock market. And that puts you in the upper half of the economy, the upper side of the K in many cases. Uh, the people who are on the lower side of the K are, for example, contract workers, uh, people who are working in uh, restaurants, hotels, that's the lower side of the income brackets. And those are the people who are in the worst shape. They didn't have a lot of money left over. In many cases, they didn't have a lot of mo money left over from their paycheck before the coronavirus. And now they have they nope. did okay. quite often no paycheck. We still have roughly 20 million people without jobs that had and jobs before. The problem with those with with what's going on with those folks is the other thing that expires at the end of this year, and it's in, they've got a lot. There's going to be a lot of makeup there. There's, it's going to take a long time for them to recover. But in many cases, if if a landlord, for example, receiving any kind of federal assistance, and in some cases when they weren't receiving federal assistance, they were unable to kick people out of their apartments. They were unable to evict them. Yeah, if they uh, if they had a mortgage through Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, they were told, or Ginnie Mae for that matter. You're not allowed to evict somebody that you're renting to. But the problem is that's going to expire on December 31st. And when it expires, there'll be a lot of people kicked out. The, even for the people who doesn't expire, they will still owe back rent come next year. And this is going to take a long time. And when you consider that that side of the economy, the lower half of the income spectrum, are the people who are already operating in narrow margins to begin with, then it's going to be really, really rough for them. And they are the people who are headed downhill. In many of the many cases, people are literally going to be made homeless, it looks like, in January, which is not a particularly good time to be made homeless. And there's less and less probability that we'll get a relief bill out of Congress that will prevent that. So Dur During this lame duck session, anyway. Hopefully, we'll get something at some point, but it doesn't look like we have a lot of compromise going on right now. So the problem, when we talk about the K environment talking about the k recovery that john and john was talking about the point is we who are listening and speaking on this radio program are in the upper side of the k we've done very well this year a lot of people have done very well this year as a matter of fact for an awful lot of people this has been a boom year yeah if you're listening to the radio program program it's probably because you're involved in the market and that means you've probably done well 
if you happen to be a person working in finance, uh, if you happen to be a person that's working in doing taxes, if you happen to be a person that's working something sophisticated that is high, uh, high requirements to get the job to begin with, or if you're a person who's working in the e-commerce product delivery, product sorting, product shipping, product transportation, anything in that area, you're getting raises. And there's, there's, by the way, there's plenty of jobs open for that if you happen to be qualified to take those jobs. But the problem is with some of the jobs being open is, for example, UPS is limiting the number of packages they will take from certain shippers this year already for Christmas. It's not that they uh, can't deliver them. If they, they, it's not they can't hire the people to deliver them. They can hire the people to deliver them. They just don't have enough trucks. They just don't have the capability of handling it in the warehouses. They're, they're getting filled up there. So the jobs were available there, and the people who are there are working a lot of overtime. But we've got a problem in that the people who aren't working there, the people who are working in a lot of other areas are out of work and they're going to stay out of work for probably another six or seven months at least. Yeah. Uh, Amazon has a, has been in the process of growing its uh, distribution networks all year. Um, They are, this, this is very, very difficult to measure but there are a good number of analysts that are saying that Amazon's logistic supply chain, its delivery service structure is now larger than UPS or FedEx. So that's inside the country. UPS and, and FedEx obviously go all over the world and Amazon does too. They just have not, they don't have the facilities all over the world. Inside the United States, Amazon has a, according to to a pretty large number of analysts so far, this is something that it's hard to measure again. It's because this is, Amazon's not charging for the delivery in the normal sense. So it's really hard to look at that and say, this is Amazon's size. But it looks to be at least the size of UPS. And UPS is saying, hey, we're not going to take shipments from these specific suppliers because we don't have enough trucks to go around. Amazon's not saying that because the suppliers are them. And so this, there's going to be some interesting stuff that comes out of this. UPS and FedEx both kind of formed as the mail service, the U.S. Postal Service, stopped being a high-priority method for getting mail around. The, the bread and butter of the, the U.S. Postal Service for since its inception was the letter. A letter from grandma to granddaughter was not very often. Most letters were between businesses and a lot were between people just keeping in touch. Well, have you noticed that that's kind of slowed down a bit in the last decade and a half? Yep. Uh, not a lot of letters going through. So the U.S. Postal Service... Its moneymaker was the letters, and it had package delivery as well, but that was only semi-profitable if there were a lot of letters being delivered at the same time. So they started raising the price and being less uh, reliable on the delivery. UPS and FedEx stepped into that vacuum and said, here we are, we'll do this. And now Amazon is coming from a completely different vector, if you will. I'll use the vector because we're in a pandemic, so might as well use it for things that it's not designed for. Um, They're coming from a completely different niche in the market of a direct-to-purchaser situation, not with a shipping and handling as extra. And so that may be the future, or it may not be. We're, We're in such a weird transition point New technology could take us in any direction at this point. We could, we could go to, all right, we're going to have local drop centers for UPS or we're going, you know, FedEx led the technology area for delivery for a very long time. And I would hope that they're in the process of, of re-looking at everything that they're doing to get up to high quality and high demand or UPS and FedEx might have a direct competitor as not only Amazon goes into groceries, they may just turn around and say, hey, we do deliveries now too. Who do you want to deliver to? At which point UPS and FedEx may be in trouble and it's a possibility. So just hold that out there. 
Well, there's there's that thought that with all this demand for people to work in warehouses and people to work delivering stuff, why can't all the poor people, all the people who are out of work in, uh, let's say, the hospitality industry uh, go out and do that? Well, among other things, if you've noticed who pulls up to your house to deliver your package from uh, from Amazon, in many cases, it's a private vehicle that pulls up to your house and a person is driving their own private vehicle. Well, not everybody has a private vehicle. A lot of people in the United States don't have one or they don't have one that's reliable enough to get the job done. Or they have only have one in the family. The other thing is you have to live where the distribution center is to get the job. In other words, if you live in Austin, it's a pretty good chance you can get a job delivering stuff for Amazon. If you live in Milam County, you can't. It's just that it, Milam County, by the way, is one of the poorer counties in Texas right now. And because there's no major employment centers in the in the in in the county, let's say you have your house in Milam County and you have it paid off, or you're making payments on it and you can't afford to get rid of it because the housing prices have fallen there, you're in that same predicament that the people in Detroit were when Detroit was shutting down. They just the people are locked in geographically in poverty. Yeah. And, and there are there are people in this K-shaped recovery, and the reason why we call it a K is if you think the side of the K kind of looks like a sideways V. Um, some part of the economy is going one way and some part of the economy is going the other. Um, and when it gets right down to the brass tacks, there are some people that are experiencing both sides of, of that economy that are experiencing the bad side and the good side at the same time. They may have lost their job and decided to retire early and have done really well off of their retirement. Or uh, this is an, an, another case, uh, 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 the spouse lost their job while the other spouse got a big raise. Um, and just anecdotally speaking to, to clients on the phone and through video conferencing, I don't know who I'm going to be talking to as far as whether they're experiencing the good side or the bad side until we're talking. And it's a it's not evenly distributed. Most of our clients have done very very well because they're not in the hospitality industry unless they're like a chef and then they had big in their contract they had the golden parachute. That's not the case for the for the concierge or the hostesses or you go through the list of people in the hospitality industry that have just, they've got nothing from it. Uh, so we have this broad spectrum and a lot of those people have taken money out of their 401ks that if they had them because they needed money to live on. So this is kind of the, the broad spectrum of answer to John's question is that People that were that lost their jobs and didn't have savings have liquidated their 401ks if they were relatively small. They don't have any retirement anymore. Uh, and other people have benefited greatly. Uh, we, last week, we talked about the demographics of the baby boom generation and how we're having very large number of numbers of retirees. We were already set to have the baby boomers start retiring and be retiring through this time frame. Well, that's been sped up drastically. And once they leave the workforce, they're not coming back. That can be good for the other workers that have more upward mobility because the, the seat that was taken by somebody who was the absolute expert is now retired. But at the same time, you don't get that kind of upward mobility if you're working at McDonald's or at, at Burger King the manager retiring, you might get to step up, but people usually don't retire from a management position at a restaurant there. They, they go somewhere else before they retire. And, and that's kind of the spectrum is that this is, you know, at our business, we were looking at this. We've done exceptionally well this year. We feel, you know, it, it's almost surreal in that we're doing very, very well at the same time period that a lot of people are doing very, very poorly. And we can't be blind to that. Uh, the, the, here in Central Texas, every time a food pantry says we're opening the doors to everybody that wants to come and get it, we get miles of lines in cars. That means people don't have enough food. 
that's a big deal. This is, this is the United States of America, and people are wondering if they're going to have enough to eat. And at the same time, there's other groups that are saying, how can anything be wrong because I'm doing so well? It's, it's that same kind of siloed experience of fill-in-the-blank president. I don't know anybody that voted for them. Why did they win? Uh, and people said that about Obama. People said that about Bush. People said that about Clinton. People said that about Trump. And now people are saying that about Biden, is that the people that you talk to regularly probably are people very much like yourself and may even have the same political views and the same income spectrum that you have. So you really have to broaden your horizon to understand that this is a K-shaped recovery. And we see it in numbers and we see it in talking to people. We talk to a broad spectrum though. There, that was, that was almost a monologue. Well, it makes sense though. And it's, and it's true. And it's really hard it's really hard if you live in a middle class neighborhood and you live in a middle upper middle class neighborhood and everybody you know is upper middle class to recognize what's going on among the people who are losing who don't have jobs 20 million people and it's hard to get your mind wrapped around it's hard to get my mind wrapped around 20 million people 20 million people who were working in february are not working now now that's an estimate and the reason it's an estimate and not an exact number is because the labor department very carefully tracks the number of people through the states that are drawing unemployment insurance, but they don't track the people who are not drawing unemployment insurance. And since the emergency stimulus, well, it wasn't the Secure Act, yeah, the, the CARES the, Act, CARES Act passed. For a while, people were drawing unemployment insurance who weren't in the standard unemployed group, and as a result, that we were able to keep up with that. But what we what we're seeing now is the number of people drawing unemployment insurance is dropping, but there's a lot of information that suggests they're not getting jobs. What they're doing is they're hitting the 26 week limit in Texas and other states, and they run out of unemployment insurance. And now not only do they are they still out of work, they're out of unemployment insurance. Self-employed people are no longer eligible for for this federal unemployment insurance because it's, uh, it's expired. And so they are no longer counted. We don't know how many self-employed people went to work. We don't know how many contract laborers went, went, went to work. We don't even know how many regular laborers went to work. We can only make educated guesses at that. We, we do thing, know one number here, and then the number is the number of new uh, employer IDs. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're an employer. It means new businesses are starting, and that's at a near record rate of, of new business production. And it's mostly by people that are laid off. And we see this every recession. I've been saying, hey, recessions are the nursery of new business and innovation. And that's the truth. That's what's going on out there. We're seeing people go and start their own businesses. But that is also one of the most dangerous things that you can do in that most businesses that start don't stay started. <laughs> when you... And the other thing is when the Labor Department releases its unemployment numbers, which is certainly 6.7%, those numbers are growing more and more suspect. And the reason is, if you look at the underlying data, the underlying statistics that are generated as they generate those statistics, you find out that they're getting fewer and fewer answers. Yeah. In other words, they're calling people to find out, to do a household survey to find out how many people are employed and unemployed in that household. But they're getting fewer and fewer answers when they call because most people are not answering the phone. Why? Because the telemarketers are driving us crazy. And if you haven't received any telemarketing calls, God bless you. You should consider yourself quite fortunate. Right. And in the middle of that, so there was an inspector general report that came out on, uh, on this whole subject, on the Labor Department and the numbers. And the inspector general said, we can't really trust these numbers. Number one, because of exactly what you were just saying, there's fewer than normal people by a large margin answering their telephones. Second is that most of the labor department is at home. They are sitting at home just like the rest of us trying to coordinate. And the labor department, while they have made great leaps and bounds towards being electronic as far as their record keeping go, they have a lot of paper. A lot of paper. And that takes a while to get from one house to another. And in a lot of cases, those houses don't have the capacity to either print 
the paper or to receive the paper. So we're getting weird summaries being sent back and forth that have never been used before. They're not really being vetted because it is emergency type situation of I got to get this data to my employees or to my coworker or to my boss and I cannot send them the Encyclopedia Britannica that's sitting here in paper. I have to send them something else. How do I do that? The inspector general says, we're using summaries we've never used before uh, in ways that we've never used any summary before. We don't know that this is going to give the correct numbers on the other end of the equation. Now, this is all short term. And I say short term within the next year or so. The United States economy probably will not fully recover until 2024 is the latest word that I'm hearing from various economists. That's the consensus of the Wall Street Journal survey. Why is it going to take so long? Not because the upper income people are going to be in a hurt, but because the lower income people are going to be in a hurt and they're going to be repaying debts and they're going to be having their credit shattered by not making payments on their uh, on their mortgages or not making payments on their uh, on the rent. That's a world of hurt. But there's a plus here on the other side in the long term. Apparently, and this is the guess that I'm getting from, uh, again, from economists, they expect to see productivity in the United States rise 2.4% as a result of the pandemic. Meaning that as more and more people work from home and more and more people work remotely, what we've seen is a dramatic increase in productivity because people are not commuting and because people are able to get their work done a lot more efficiently at home. Now, not everybody, but companies are also realizing that they don't need as much real estate. So there's a double whammy to this. Uh, people are, we're seeing an increase in productivity, which is the key to seeing the economy grow. We either need a growth in population, a growth in education, a growth in, um, in robotics, or a growth in some other growth in productivity to get things to grow. Without a growth in population, which is a slow motion thing, and we're not getting our growth in population over the last couple of decades has been mainly from immigrants, and our immigration rates have dropped off dramatically. And our birth rate is down during the pandemic. And not likely to recover. Surveys again and again are saying it's not likely to recover very fast, if at all. So either we get more immigrants in the United States and train them, we get more kids, which we're not doing, we get more robots, which a lot of people are going to object to, or we find other ways to increase productivity. And one of the ways to increase productivity, apparently, in a lot of cases, is don't go to work. Stay home and work. Uh, there's going to be probably a significant number of people, nobody knows exactly what percentage of the workforce, that simply will not go back into the office except maybe one day a week, if that often. We had that conversation yesterday at the office. Uh, there, there we're having kind of end-of-year analysis conversations and meetings with the staff and talking about how do we improve and how do we move forward? And the question kept coming up. Well, um, when are we coming back to the office or are we? And we've had people that were, um, remote workers for years before this. So we, we had the facilities in place to do it. But now the majority of the office on any given day is not in the office. The vast majority of the office is not in the office on a given day. And so, so the question is, are they going to come back? And maybe some of them will. But the, we don't necessarily need everybody back in the office. It's working. It's actually working quite well, especially if schools get really up and going and we don't have remote learning. They're the productivity is up. Now we have to work a lot on communication. So we've seen some shifts during this pandemic. We're never going to go back in some ways to what we were before. This, there, there are new things that are here that we kind of sort of thought, well, wouldn't that be weird if people, if everybody just stayed home and did their work from home and no, that's not possible. And what about the bandwidth for that? And well, we've conquered those hurdles um, so uh, this is something you were, you were hitting it. So I'm going to go to the most basic statement, uh, in economics. Yeah. There's a lot of statistics, tons of them, but growth in any economy comes down to two very, very basic things. 
demographics and productivity. Our demographics are flat unless we increase our immigration, which is not us proclaiming we need to do it. It's a simple variable. If you increase product, uh, if you increase immigration, your demographics grow. Don't don't hear us advocating back and forth for either of these things. It's a simple statement of these are the variables. If you have a flat demographics, you have to increase your productivity. In Japan, they're doing that. Their demographics are negative. They're shrinking as a population. Their GDP is shrinking as well. But per person, their per capita GDP is growing. Each person is making more money, but their demographics are shrinking faster than their productivity is rising. In the end, though, if our GDP shrinks, we can assume that our tax revenue shrinks, and our tax revenue shrinks, we will become less assertive around the world. We'll become less of a powerful nation. We won't be able to pay for our military as it stands. The bottom line to it is uh, we need to take an objective view of what is it going to take to keep our GDP growing. And one of the things, one of the few things that's worked for a lot of countries is, again, carefully managing immigration. We haven't managed in immigration for decades. Ronald Reagan was calling for the management of immigration. George H.W. Bush, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, Donald George W. George W. Bush, every single president that we have had since Ronald Reagan has been saying we have an immigration issue. We need to get the law rewritten and changed to be more appropriate to what's needed. And, of course, that hasn't happened. We've had lots of thises and thats. We've had DACA. We've had amnesty. We've had, and amnesty was under Ronald Reagan. Um, and we've, Bill Clinton wasn't really able to get much done at all on immigration. It's only been, uh, strange situations. Obama had uh, DACA, which was something that was com considered completely bipartisan. When he, DACA was passed, it was with a, a, a huge number of Republicans backing it as well, because it's not the fault of the kids that came across with their parents that they weren't born here. So we have to give a path to citizenship. If we've already educated them and they've gone through high-level universities, the best universities in the world, which exist here in the United States, why should we deport them back to their country of origin now to get the benefit of our, our expenditure on education for them? And that's what DACA is about. And that's, you know, that's not the liberal opinion on, from the economy. That's what we're talking about. Why are we doing this? So we got to fix immigration. We got we to gotta fix taxes. We got, I mean, there's a huge number of things that need to be fixed, and both sides of the political spectrum are agreeing on these things. Yep, we got to fix them, just not how to fix them. At some point, I hope we actually get something done. <laughs> um, there's another subject we can talk about, and that's student loans. Yeah. Uh, and we, it's been kind of bandied about and thrown here and there. And a lot will depend on the elections in Georgia, but the runoff elections in Georgia. But still, student loan forgiveness in some form is going to happen. And when I say that it's going to happen, the general, the uh, Congressional Budget Office, I think it was, did a study and determined that about $400 billion, that's four-tenths of a trillion dollars, in student loans are simply not going to be repaid. The people who have the student loans don't make enough money to repay them. And they can't be written off in bankruptcy. They're simply not going to be repaid. Uh, I, I had some problems with the math in that report, but the reality, we can quibble about the math back and forth all day long, but the reality is that there's a certain large group of people that have student loans that won't be able to pay them back. And so President-elect Biden ran on the position of forgiving $10,000 in student loans and then forgiving more for poor people. And that's, that's one of those things that's probably going to happen one way or the other. Uh, and, and it's one of those things that we need to, if you have a student loan or you have children that have student loans or something, it's something to be aware of. It probably will be slanted towards the low end of the income spectrum. And this is very specific federal student loans. If it's a private student loan, the government will not be forgiving it because it doesn't belong to the government. Right. 
Uh, and that's something a lot of people were shocked when, you know, they called their uh, student loan company and said, hey, we hear we can go on forbearance now. And the student loan company said, no, we're not, we're not federal. We're private. You have to pay. Uh, they didn't get any relief there. And even people that have consolidated their, their student loans or refinanced under a, a private plan, they originally had federal and then went private. And it was a good financial decision at the time. If the government turns around and says, we're forgiving $10,000 of student loans, they're only talking about the federal side. So this, this could be a complicated thing as well. Wait a minute, the government's involved. Not could be. It's going to be a complicated thing. I, the government can't do anything simply. It's just, it's not in, in the cards. It's not going to happen. But I agree with you. I think that some form of student loan forgiveness will be advanced. We've got several forms of it that are in existence today. If you worked for a nonprofit or governmental agency and made all of your payments for a 10-year period, you and during the entirety of that 10-year period, you worked for a nonprofit or a government agency, you can have your student loan forgiven. Now, it's been very difficult to get it forgiven because it's a long process that you have to continue making the payment through the process, but it's there. More and easier student loan forgiveness is likely on the horizon, and if that happens... I think it should be mandatory to determine who we're loaning things to and what they're trying to learn when we loan it. Right now, we just basically say, you're going to school, here, have some money. Uh, even if you don't finish your degree, even if you don't get a job on the subject, even you just go down the list of things that some people are studying, things that are there's just not any demand for, and they wind up with a huge student loan that the government then forgives. That doesn't seem fair in any sense. And that is a word that is scary, the word fair. So the opposition to this looks at it and says, I'm not getting anything out of this. Why should anybody? And this comes back to what's holding up the stimulus package in Congress is if you're doing well, it's hard to imagine people that aren't. And... It's not through any fault of their own in this particular circumstance that they're not doing well. Fairness is only in our head. Fairness is not something that the world is going to hold a standard to. You know, it, physics doesn't care about fairness. If, a, if an asteroid hits one house and not another house, there's no fairness. Um, taxes are not made in a fair sense either. There's, there's really not a whole lot of fairness in the world except as an aspirational concept. So when people talk about pay your fair share of taxes, it means something different from each lip that it goes through, including if you have two lips, you probably have two meanings for it. So uh, just hold that in mind. What else do you have to talk about? Well, another thing about the forgiveness of student loans, for example, if you're a teacher... You have to, it's not enough that you're a teacher for five years to get $17,500 of your student loans forgiven. You have to be a teacher in a qualifying low-income school continuously for that period. And the same thing is true for public service and public service loan forgiveness. Or uh, if, you, if you're doing something like that, again, you have to be in a qualifying um organization and the organization has to qualify for the entire period. If the quality, if the organization uh, for the 10 year period defaults on its qualification for one day for one month, then you're out of, you're out of luck. So it's, it's just a really, really rough situation getting student loans forgiven and student loans, I think are up there with mortgages as the, the number one or number two debts in the United States right now, which is no, nowhere near where they were intended to go. I don't, I don't know that they had an intention on how much debt was going to be out there. Well, when this, when the guaranteed student loan situation was set up, they looked at the fact that they, that, and they made a mistake there, but they didn't know it at the time. People with college educations do much better financially than people without college educations. But the problem was when they threw all that money at it, a lot of people started getting college educations that didn't have them do better. 
people started getting college educations in art history, for example. There's just not a lot of high in, income employment in art history. Um, what you were talking about with student loans is they've just passed up auto loans in size. Mortgages are still significantly more. It's almost $10 trillion in mortgage debt out in the United States right now. Um, and this is from Statistica. Uh, who who get it from the Fed and several other places, Census Bureau. Um, but auto loans are at about $1.34 trillion out there right now. Student loans are at $1.54 trillion. <clears throat> auto loans, I was thinking. Of. Yeah. So it's, mortgages are number one and, and student loans are now number two. Yeah, and, and mortgages are near $10 trillion where student loans are $1.5 trillion, but it's still... A trillion. Anytime you use the T word, it's it's big. There's a lot of student loans out there, and if you think of a trillion, and if we have 150 million adults in the United States, and divide that by the the adults, it spreads out to a large number for everybody. If you look at it that way, um, and that means that the people that have the student loans have a pretty big burden that they have to get started with, and. They also have whatever they bought with the student loan, whatever that education was. And if the education is a quality education, then they can pay back the student loan. The danger comes when they spend that money on an education that doesn't pay very much. And or an education teach them very much. An education what? It doesn't teach them very much. Right. <clears throat> we've, exactly. hired we've hired people who have... In at least one case, we were looking at hiring a person who has a master's who had a master's degree, but when asked to construct a simple paragraph or a simple sentence, was kind of at a loss. And the one of the reasons that they wanted to get high pay is because they owed so much on student loans. Right. And we've hired people, good people, intelligent people, who had trouble constructing sentences and paragraphs, who had trouble writing effectively, despite the fact they had a bachelor's degree, and that indicates to me that the quality of education has gone down with the availability of cheap money to pay for it. That's correct. Um, so when we're looking at an aid package like this, a couple of things to talk about. We got to run some commercials though. We do. And we got another question. We do. Uh, this one went to you and not to me. I get some to me and yeah. not to you. What is our question before we go to break? We may not answer it before break, but there seems to be bipartisan. Well, that's not. I'm going to paraphrase this question. There seems to be bipartisan support for infrastructure spending to help the United States, and we need it. Who's going to be? Where is the taxes going to come from to pay for it? So that's a good question. Good question, man. I want to answer it before the break, but we need to take a break. Tony, yeah. we're going to take a break. Uh, if you'd like to contact us and ask a question while we're doing this. Uh, please give us an email at jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. That's Tango Papa, Whiskey Charlie, or The Personal Wealth Coach. And we'll be back on the other side of these commercials with more of The Personal Wealth Coach. And welcome back to more of The Personal Wealth Coach. We have a fantastic question waiting for us. This is Jake McClure, and on the line with me I have... Jeff McClure. Uh, we are The Personal Wealth Coach as a radio program. And uh, we had a question. You want to repeat that question or paraphrase it? I'm excited about well, it. I want to paraphrase a question <clears throat> from John that there seems to be bipartisan support for infrastructure spending to to reinvigorate the economy. And we need it not just to reinvigorate the economy. We have bridges and, and Internet and a lot of things that need to be improved in order to make our economy more productive. Problem is, where do we get the money to pay for that? Because the gasoline taxes that we've got right now, the gasoline and diesel taxes we have right now are declining each year as we use lower, we're actually using less gasoline and less diesel each year. We're using more electricity. The electricity that's being used to repel cars is not taxed to pay for the highways. So those cars are effectively using the highways for free. It's kind of like the, uh, if you've ever considered getting an agricultural exemption, and getting running an agriculture something on your land and you can buy gasoline and diesel fuel without paying highway taxes on it because you can't use it theoretically to drive on the highways right if you're driving your farm truck on the highway you have to be doing it with the right color of gasoline and they actually do add dye to it uh, to make it the right color to say it's not 
the cheap stuff. It's, and it's not the tax-free stuff. It's the real stuff that everybody uses. The other part of this is infrastructure is one of those areas where debt is a reasonable use for paying for infrastructure. If you think of a corporation that needs a machine that builds the best of the best of the best of the widgets, but it's going to cost them a lot of money, they need to look at what they're going to gain from the production of the equipment rather than the cost. If they have a production of these wonderful, amazing widgets that will pay them back for the machine over a long period of time, then it's reasonable to go into debt to buy that machine if you don't have enough cash on hand. The same is true at the governmental level, only when you talk about revenue, it's tax revenue. And this is something that is no longer questioned. This is not something that people go, well, maybe this isn't the case. It's, it is pretty absolute, which is the better the infrastructure, the better the roads, the better the internet, the better the waterway system, the more productive the people that live there, the more commerce of the people that lives there, and the higher the tax revenue. And this is not something new. This is something we've done in the past. Rural electrification program. It wasn't. It was not cost effective to bring electricity to rural areas. Urban areas, it's very cost effective to bring electricity. They earn, the electric companies earn plenty of money to do that because there's a lot of concentration in housing, a lot of concentration in people. The power lines had to run relatively short. But once you got out into the boonies, it was no longer uh, it was no longer effective to do that financially. So the government stepped in and supported that through grants, literally, and low interest loans from Congress. They did the same thing with telephones. The telephone system it's very in, it's very ineffective for the mail system and for the telephone system to deliver to rural areas. And, and what about what about the the big dams that we have built up on all these lakes. I mean, what did, what is you certainly not going to get those paid for by your fishing certificates. Your, your fishing license is not going to pay for these massive dams. The savings that you get from the, from the dams are all the houses downstream that don't get washed away so that those people don't have low income for a significant period of time and can't pay their taxes. And the, the avoidance of, loss of water and drought and the avoidance of loss of crops right down when the rivers don't run yeah so so when you look at what is a government what should a government be investing in and people have asked this a lot when they talk about the ious you know the government is is got ious to the social security administration and so on the initial thought was, well, we'll put this in infrastructure and that will pay us back extra tax revenue in the future. But they didn't wind up doing that. Instead, they just put it in the general fund and used it. If For, for every dollar that the government spends on, on infrastructure, they have an uh, exponential growth on that infrastructural area's tax revenue into the future. And if you doubt that, just look at where is the growth in Texas and demographics and cities. It's on the I-35 corridor. Oh, wait a minute. (laughs) The government built that. And if you think about the tax revenue that's being generated along the I-35 corridor, you can say that it was a fantastic investment by the government. They used debt to do it. How do I know they used debt? Well, because Social Security, Medicare, and military spending account for all of the tax revenue. Any other spending is debt. Uh, and that means that this logistics that were the, you know, anything that's done on the highway, and right now we're just trying to maintain, even when we improve by adding a lane, what we're really doing is just trying to maintain the flow. We're not, we're not increasing this. Uh, which means that we're, we've got a stable projection of growth based on this infrastructural investment. We don't see a lot of growth coming out of it in the future. Um, how do we pay for it? I think this, this should be the priority that the government has, period. This is why we have the government. Uh, this is why we built the government, guys, was to put roads up and bridges up so that we could actually be together. And this goes back to almost... You know, first you need security, 
and then you need infrastructure so that you can do trade. And then the government gets to tax that trade. Well, why do they get to tax it? This goes back to far, far, far back. Why do you have a toll on a bridge? Well, because the, you didn't make the bridge. Somebody else did. Uh, and you may get to pay for the bridge with the toll. But the reality is that if it's the government, they're paying for the bridge with all of the tax revenue from all of the income that's being taxed on all the corporations that have trucks that are going across that bridge. It's very hard to track dollar for dollar. How much did we get for building this bridge? But when you get down to it, you make a massive amount of money by building good bridges if you're a government. You also make a massive amount of money by putting up toll rolls like 145 that goes around Austin. Because oh. without 145, which gets pretty heavy, heavily trafficked under some circumstances. You mean 45? I'm 145. Yeah, I, 145. I, yeah. We often call it I-45, but it's not as <laughs> 45. Traffic through Austin would be utterly dead, gridlocked all the time, and it would halt transportation up and down through the center of Texas and would dramatically reduce the Texas income and the Texas tax base. So it was a good idea to build 145. And, of course, we... We decided collectively, whether we like it or not, that maybe we should, we're not going to have a toll road that spans Texas. So we're continuing to try to increase the continuous construction on I-35. But even then, even with the reduced traffic that we have tonight, today, the other day when we drove down to Austin and back, and we drove down in the evening, the traffic jams were occurring on one on i-35 that just amazed me and it was a lot of it was trucks the point is that we have already saturated the traffic system we need something better we need something bigger we need a lot more in the united states than we have today and uh, there's a, there's a content there's a continuous and very consistent agreement in both sides of the aisle in Congress that we need to do this. The question, and John put it very, very well, how do we pay for it? And the answer is pretty simple. We need to tax the use of the highways. Does that mean we put a toll on them? I don't know. Maybe it means a tax on the possession of a vehicle uh, based on your income. I don't know. There's a lot of difficulty here, and I'm glad I'm not the one who has to make the decision on that. Yeah. And this, this is one of those things that... Um... How we pay for it is secondary in my mind. I, should, I think it should be primary behind defense to get logistics in place, to get the infrastructure built in a way that allows for expansion of commerce and trade because that's what's really funding the government. And stuff like paying back student loans, well, this is another investment, and it's an investment in two parts by the government in that, one, they make an interest rate on the student loans, but two, they're giving this money at relatively low interest rates to people who they hope this, this loan will be used to create a job that has high-paying potential. That's, that's really what it comes down to. Student loans are an investment by the government in the people of the government. Uh, that's one of the things why I've never said we should abolish the sole concept uh, and just do it for free because free becomes worthless. It really does. It becomes worthless very, very quickly. And if you doubt that, look at the quality of education in the public school system. Well, you know, we have you have a sister. I have a daughter who lives in Denmark, and we spent some time discussing the education system there. It really boils down to the fact that when you leave high school, first off, about ninth grade, there's a division. And there's no looking down on people who take vocational or technical courses and get technical degrees, technical high school diplomas or vocational high school diplomas over those who don't. We need people to do the things that don't require a college education. And the other, part, the other side of the high school education past the ninth grade goes into preparation for college and you have to pass tests to do that. In other words, if you qualify academically to go on to college, you start preparing to go on to college in the ninth grade or the 10th grade. We're already doing that, by the way, with our AP courses. And then if you qualify to get into college after that, in other words, you've done your studies, you've passed your tests, you've written your papers, you go on into college 
and that's free. And if you qualify for a master's degree in their public school system, that's free too. So it makes a lot of sense to take a look at the way that we looked at high school education, which is now generally free, and split it up to people who really want to go to doing work rather than preparing for college that they may never go to, and just rethink our entire education system. Now, whether that's going to happen is a big question, of yeah, course. It's, it's unlikely to happen, but it's something we can keep talking about and harping about. Maybe somebody will will listen at some point. That would be nice. Um, but we're today. Yeah, we're about out of time. Um, thank you for listening. Thank you for all the, the questions that we're getting. This is fantastic. Uh, Unless, of course, you're listening, in which case we're not thanking you. Yeah, we're not thanking you. If you're not listening to us right now, uh, we don't, we're not giving you any thanks at all. Right. Yeah. Uh, Merry Christmas, everybody. We're getting close to that time. And, uh, if you'd like to contact us off the air, we actually do give fiduciary investment advice to people of relatively high net worth. Uh, if you'd like to talk to us off the air, you can reach voicemail during the weekend, real live people during the week, uh, locally at 254-947-1111. You can go uh, toll-free at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. Or you can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com, or email us at jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. Until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.